This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 16th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Many environmental problems have solutions that exist on a micro level. So says Todd Myers, author of Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. We spoke earlier this year. When you talk about environmental technology and removing power from politicians and giving it back to people, my first thought is giant machines that suck all of this carbon dioxide out of the air <laughs> and, and a, like large scale industrial projects aimed at solving environmental problems. Is that what you're talking about? I am. I'm actually talking about the exact opposite because uh, so many of the environmental problems that we have um, are actually not grand scale or the solutions to them um, are actually better done um, at a very small level. So when people think of environmental solutions, they tend to think of the 1970s, right? They think of the EPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. And I think that uh, if we are going to break out of the cycle where environmental problems are simply a catalyst for more big government solutions, which is why I think so many people are skeptical of environmental concerns because they just simply see it as a Trojan horse for big government. The only way to get out of that is to recognize that there are lots of small solutions that are more powerful actually than the big types of projects that you talk about that are the stereotype. Um, and it's not just climate change. It is protecting wildlife. It is reducing, uh, reducing ocean plastic. And the reason that we have these opportunities is because technology, small technology, has become so ubiquitous, we now can tackle problems using, you know, sort of the theories of Eleanor Ostrom and a more libertarian uh, approach rather than saying, okay, uh, government, you know, here, we're granting you power. Go solve the problem. Give me a case. The one of the, and the most dramatic case is ocean plastic. So more and more plastic is washing into the ocean. It's not happening in the United States. Primarily where it's happening is places like the Philippines, like Indonesia, um, Brazil, Haiti. Um, so how do you solve the problem of ocean plastic, of plastic going into the ocean when the government structures aren't even there to be able to solve the problem? So a group called Plastic Bank, simply using smartphones, hires people to pick up plastic that would wash into the ocean. And the smartphones are key for two reasons. One, it the GPS shows where they grabbed the plastic. So you know, okay, this is likely to wash into the ocean, which then they then take that plastic, recycle it, and then sell it to SC Johnson. So when you buy a Windex bottle, it says made with ocean-bound plastic. And if anybody says, hey, SC Johnson, you're not actually buying ocean-bound plastic, they can literally show the locations where the plastic was picked up. And then Plastic Bank pays the people using a cryptocurrency on their smartphone so that then they can have it. So you basically, you're not reliant on government. You're not reliant on any structures. You create this very open, very transparent, very reliable system. They have, using this system, they have collected 3 billion plastic bottles that would have washed into the ocean. And so the other argument is, is that when you do this very small technology, this very localized approach, you can't have a big approach. Only government can do that. <clears throat> plastic bank is a perfect example of where that's simply not true. I'm skeptical of that only because uh, I, I wonder the degree to which uh, domestic corporate entities will be interested in funding these, you know, small scale but impactful projects. Right. So the, so 
you have to have an incentive to do it. And part of the incentive with, with Windex, obviously, is, is that they want to have this label that says made with ocean-bound plastic. But again, the people picking up the plastic are not providing no value. They are providing a value. They are providing plastic. And it costs a little bit more to have that plastic than, say, virgin plastic. But there is a value added. It's not simply reliant on government subsidies and government regulations. They're actually doing something that is of value. Let me give you another example that is even more to the point. So in Africa, um, when NGOs or governments put in pumps, because there is no revenue system, because it's reliant on government, when those pumps break, there's nobody there to fix it for a very long time. And about half of all pumps break within a year and a half. So how do you fix that? So a group called eWater simply created a cloud-connected water um, pump. And what people do is they fill an account with their, with their cell phones. And then they have like a key fob that can turn on and off the water. And it costs them about a penny a day to get access to clean water rather than having to walk to a nearby stream. But now what happens is, is that if that pump breaks, there is somebody who is losing money. Every day that that pump is broken, they lose money. And so rather than it taking months to repair, having to rely on the government or somebody to come up with the money, their average downtime is about a day. And you can actually go onto their webpage and they have a dashboard that 98% of pumps are currently working. So that's another example of where small technology that can be used in rural African villages create the incentives that you're talking about, right? So that you're not reliant on government to keep those pumps working. And it's also good for the environment. It's not just good because you can have access to clean water, but it's also good for the environment because one of the top reasons for deforestation in Africa is to cut down trees to cook food and, and boil water. And then the other way, if you have, uh, if water gets contaminated, the other thing that people do is that they will buy plastic bags of water. Well, if you don't have access to water, you certainly don't have access to trash service. And so where do those plastic bags go? They, they get thrown out. So something as simple as just making a pump cloud connected and creating a stream of income is not only empowering people with clean water, but it's reducing deforestation and reducing plastic. Pollution. Yeah. So in, in both of those examples, you see you have uh, a, a group of people <clears throat> who are being paid some small amount of money to right. either pick up plastic or in the reverse example, paying a very small amount of money to have access to water. Correct. And uh, so is that ubiquitous across the uh, examples that you cite in your book? Yeah. So in my book, Time to Think Small, there's uh, it's sort of one of those things where you start noticing them and then you see them everywhere. And what's exciting about this is, is that these sorts of solutions are occurring more, almost more in developing countries than in developed countries. There are certainly good examples in the United States and Canada and the UK where small technologies are allowing people to, to your first example, reduce CO2 emissions, to save energy and things like that. But in many cases, these as small technologies are being applied to help people get access to energy or protect wildlife habitat. Um, in the capital of Ghana, where power goes out a lot, um, a group created an app on your phone. And if your phone is plugged in and on Wi-Fi and suddenly loses power and Wi-Fi and doesn't move, it sends a ping to the utility to say, I think our power is out. And with that, the utility can then say, oh, we just got 10 pings right here. We know where the power is out. That's 
a technology, that's something that even U.S. utilities couldn't do 10 years ago. They relied on you to, to call. And now, just with a simple app, they can do it in Ghana. So it's really amazing in its application. Now, uh, I believe the last, maybe the last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about a piece of technology that you could, American households or any, any household where right. you have a breaker box in your home yeah. to figure out where the energy hogs are right. in your house without depending on some sort of energy star sticker that you've long since removed from your refrigerator to figure those things out and economize, uh, as you wish. That's exactly right. And this is a perfect example of where, of, of the contrast between relying on politicians and government and relying on markets. So we just spent billions and billions of dollars as a country installing smart meters to tell people when their power is out and then to be able to give you your energy use every 15 minutes. By way of contrast, what I have in my, in my utility box is a little uh, orange uh, box that's uh, called Sense that senses how the electricity that I'm using a million times a second. And what it does with that is, is that it gets artificial intelligence and tells me, oh, your washing machine just turned on, your dishwasher, oh, your lights are on, things like that, and then tells you where you're using electricity. And even a guy who pays attention to this, like me, I am constantly surprised at where the electricity is being used. Um, in my old home, I, I was pretty shocked at how much electricity the, just the light bulbs were using. And so I swapped them out for LEDs and they paid themselves back within four months. Even as closely as I pay attention, technologies like these where I can simply look at my phone and say, oh, this is where I'm using technology. You don't have to think that climate change is a crisis to want to save energy. And if you can, these sorts of technologies allow you to save money um, while reducing energy use. And the, the byproduct is less CO2. What stands in the way of a larger deployment of this kind of technology? Because I, I you know, first world countries uh, in Europe, in the United States, in increasing parts of Asia and elsewhere, it, it's fine for us to want the, the psychic benefit of buying a bottle that has uh, is made from ocean-bound plastic or e economizing in, in small ways with the express purpose of wanting to help the environment for a lot of the a lot of the world it's it takes a lot more than that I would actually say that in some cases, it's the opposite. Where you see these small technologies, because they are so low cost, you see them being implemented. It's the regulation that that it creates the difficulty. And in places where the government simply isn't powerful enough to stop the technologies, that's where you're seeing these flourish. And in the United States, actually, I would say that the biggest barrier to making things like sense, to making smart thermostats more effective and powerful is that the way our electricity system is built right now is it is an agreement between regulators and the utilities and the consumers are sort of byproducts. Um, bringing the consumer in with that technology so that consumers have power is really critical. A anytime price gas prices go up, everybody knows about it. Everybody understands the politics of gasoline because they see the prices every day. If you ask somebody what the cost of a kilowatt hour is, they don't know what the cost is and they don't even know what a kilowatt hour is. So as long as that's the circumstance, the decisions about electricity are gonna be made by planners and other folks. And until you give people the tools to get involved, then we're gonna get a lot of bad outcomes like we see in California almost every year and things like that. 
get the consumers in the game, and a lot of that will change. Yeah, I, I refer to this example a lot, and uh, I'm almost embarrassed to do so so many times, but it's so it's such a strong point that stuck with me for 20 plus years, Virginia Postrel made this argument about the the deployment of satellite dishes in the 1980s throughout the United States, and uh, the, the, and especially in the 90s, small satellite dishes, mini satellite, like uh, uh, the multiple companies that were pr- producing uh, or delivering cable to people essentially right. with satellites, and they created such a massive constituency so quickly that regulators were caught flat-footed. And that's in the United States. In the weaker governed countries that you're talking about, regulators wouldn't, if if there even are regulators, uh, don't really uh, have the wherewithal or the ability to police a lot of these options that people have. So it's an interesting thought that the United States might be doing a worse job at deploying these kinds of technologies because we have such as a large, robust right. regulatory apparatus. Well, and we've seen what it takes to overcome that with permissionless innovation, right? I mean, Uber, look how much Uber had to do to sort of break the taxi monopoly. I remember, so I live in Seattle, and when Uber was in Seattle, the uh, Seattle City Council attempted to sort of re-regulate the taxi industry and regulate Uber out of existence. And so many people showed up at the next city council meeting that even the Seattle City Council changed its position and went back to allowing Uber. When you get a constituency like that, that's what it takes. And that only happens if you give power to more individuals. So we've seen it can happen. Otherwise, what we are locked in is a a process where uh, the left adds more regulation, adds more subsidies to energy and things like that. Republicans may roll some of them back, but then it's just, it swings back and forth about how much power you have. And if you're reliant on Joe Manchin always voting the way that you want, you are in trouble, right? I mean, that's the situation. So you have to break that dynamic. And the only way to break that dynamic is to give people more power so that they don't assume every time, so that you don't get this sort of pendulum back and forth, but where planners are always at the center. Yeah, and I I think for environmentalists, people who uh, have a strong commitment to uh, environmental stewardship, uh, you know, so many people on the right simply deny environmental problems. I mean, de- literally deny their existence. But the the reason that they do that is is that it's it is motivated reasoning, and the motivated reasoning is because environmentalism is seen as a Trojan horse for socialism. And that, that's that's where I'm going with this, yeah. which is the, the idea that there are a lot of people who engage in that kind of motivated reasoning, and we should give them the luxury of not feeling like they have to do that. Exactly. And, and to the extent that you can deploy uh, inexpensive, uh, low-cost technology that helps align incentives properly, <laughs> then uh, many Republicans would quit being climate change deniers. Yeah, or or deny other uh, environmental issues that, that are out there. And the beauty is, is that the power of its small environmental technologies breaks a lot of those standard traditional, um, or, or I should say traditional political um, gridlock. The foreword of my book is written by somebody from World Wildlife Fund. 
because they are very aggressively uh, uh, using these technologies because they see that they work. And so it's a very nice alignment of people who care about the environment, people who want solutions to work, and people who are worried about government top-down solutions but want an alternative. And so I think there's a real opportunity to bring those two sides together, which frankly, on the environment, we don't see very much. So what, what in the United States, what would be a major step toward accommodating this kind of low-cost technology that has significant promise to uh, l- use less energy or allow people to right. uh, be more effective at stewarding the environment? I think the first thing is to get rid of some of the regulatory barriers. Um, Part of it is simply a mindset change of recognizing that consumers should be for electricity, for example, um, have the same sort of control and transparency that we have with gas prices right now. Just recognizing that consumers should be in the game and that it shouldn't just be a rigged game between um, utilities and um, regulators. But I think in a big way, it is simply a mind, like I said, a mindset change. If you are an agency that is looking for solutions, already some um, local and state agencies are going out and using citizen science, using citizens to find and identify issues and problems and report um, rather than um, have the government, you know, have regulators out there. Um, and I think when you make people a partner, just getting people in the game rather than saying it's somebody else's problem <laughs> makes such a big difference. Um, and I think, you know, there are certainly people who are uh, worried about technology and, and how government can misuse technology. I share many of those same concerns, but I also know that without using technology to get consumers in the game on a lot of these different issues, um, we're locked into a situation where you're always going to get more government. It's just going to be the next government solution, the next government solution. Todd Myers is author of Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. It's that time of year when I ask you, yes, you, to show your support for this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute with a gift. You can visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. Thank you.